morning, good morning. Let me go ahead and take a seat. Thank you to Johnny and, and Chris for leading us in worship this morning. I will confess to you that I am, I am not a storyteller when I preach. Uh, many of you have heard me preach. No, I don't tell stories very often, but today there was a story that seemed fitting, so we're going to start with a little story about me. Um, so when I, was a, when I was a kid, uh, you could find me with the ball <clears throat> most any day of the year. Um, if there was a sport to be played, I was playing it. When I was eight, nine, ten years old, um, I was playing baseball, Little League Baseball. For those of you who have been through this process, uh, you may remember how this goes. So there's a pool of players, kids have registered, you show up, you go out there and you hit like five balls, take some ground balls, take some fly balls, and then coaches essentially have a draft to, to pick players, right? Um, so eight, nine, ten years old, I went out, did the thing. I've been playing baseball for a couple of years at this point. Um, you know, in the same league, kind of knew everybody. Well, there was a new coach. And the way it goes when you're a new coach in some of these leagues is the, the experienced coaches like to mess with you a little bit. Um, so, you, you know, these new coaches don't know these players at all, right? They, 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 don't, they don't know us from Adam's house cat. So someone had, had told the coach that ended up drafting me that I was a catcher. That could not have been any further from the truth. Um, the coach was just messing with him. So we show, to show up to the first day of practice, and this guy's like, hey, you know, can you put on your catcher's gear to go catch? And I'm like, what catcher's gear? He's like, aren't you a catcher? I'm like, no. No, I've, I've never, never played that position in, in my life. What he didn't know is that some two years earlier, um, I had been at a practice swinging a baseball bat, swinging a baseball bat, and I, when I'd come through on my backswing, a kid had walked up behind me that I didn't see, and I had essentially cracked his head open with a baseball bat. So not only did I not play catcher, I had a pretty strong fear of catching because I had already cracked a kid's head open with a baseball bat. Now, what does that have to do with anything that we're doing today? Well, when, when Travis approached me about preaching this morning, uh, I, I got some of the most dreaded words that I ever hear as, as a preacher of God's Word. Pick your passage. Had the same feelings as I had as a kid when that coach told me to go, to go be a catcher. I, I love preaching through the Word of God, verse by verse, book by book. Um, we're, we're in transition now, and the truth is, I like, I like doing that because in some ways it's it's easy, right? It's like, this is the passage. This is what we're going to preach. Um, when, when you're in one of these transitional positions and you're picking a topic, uh, it, it takes, A, it takes a lot more work, and, and B, you just have to be a lot more sensitive to the Spirit and diligent in prayer um, as, as you prep. Um, unfortunately, I will also tell you that similar to me hitting the kid on my backswing, the very first time I preached, I was told the very same thing. Pick your passage. It did not go well. Uh, it, it was a disaster on many, many fronts, um, but the Lord is faithful, the Lord is good, um, and he will be, he'll be with us today as we dive into his word. If you want to be opening your Bibles to Psalm 16, we're going to start in verse 5 of Psalm 16. I'll tell you, we're, we're going to cover a wide gamut of the Bible today. It'll be Old Testament, it'll be New Testament, be in Pauline epistles, um, we'll read some James um, we'll be in Revelation as well, so we're, we're going to cover a wide, wide range of Scripture, um, so have your Bibles handy. Most of the Scriptures will be up on the screen as we make our way, make our way through things, um, so have your Bibles ready. We'll be flipping around quite a bit. So, 
Today we're going to talk about the topic of suffering. And, and when, I, when I say suffering, I, I don't just mean persecution. So to differentiate, differentiate between the two, you know, persecution is what we think of with oppressed Christians in closed countries or the, the discrimination that a Christian feels in, in a certain setting. That is a form of suffering, but that's not all that we're talking about this morning. When we talk about suffering this morning, we're talking about the, the broad sweeping effects of sin and brokenness on the world. So that, that's pain, that's discomfort, that's death, that's failure, that's tears, that's all of those things. So that's what we're talking about this morning is, is that type of, of suffering. It can be persecution, but it can just be the, the daily ins and outs of life. It can be a trying situation, it can be the death of a loved one, it could be sickness, it could be any of those things. So that's what we're talking about this morning, specifically in the context of joy. So how do we suffer well with joy? And so we're, we're going to start in Psalm, we're going to work our way through to Revelation, and we're going to see how this theme of suffering with joy permeates throughout all, all of Scripture. So why this topic on this day? So, so Travis just finished walking through the, 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 the basic tenets of the gospel in a series called Good News. We're getting ready to celebrate Easter. Um, that's where we're headed. So today I want to I ground us in, in two things. One is, where are, we, where, where are we at in the timeline of redemptive history right now? As you and I, mostly believers in Christ, sitting in a church in 2023, where in this process of election, justification, sanctification, glorification. Where are we at in that process? And then two, I want, I want to look forward to the ultimate end. So the good news of the gospel, Easter, are all pointing to one ultimate end. So that's what we're going to talk about today, all through the lens of suffering. You may be sitting there saying, what in the world do all of these things have to do with one another? What is suffering, sanctification, the ultimate end of redemptive history, what do they all have to do with one another? And that's why we're going to be jumping around our Bibles quite a bit this morning is to cover all of those things. Um, one, one last just kind of introductory point. Um, th this, this topic of suffering is of personal spiritual significance to, to me. Um, so when I was in college, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I, you know, I'd been overseas. I'd seen the work of God on the missions field. Um, but, but God really started to work on me in college through, quite frankly, professors, some who were believers, some who were not, who were, were questioning basic tenets of my, of my beliefs. Um, and so I, I struggled mightily to reconcile the reality of what I saw in life with what I was taught of the Bible. The two did not seem to reconcile together. And, and I, I'll never forget this season um, I, I was reading Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, um, which you can go read it if you want. It's a little wild and crazy, but um, I was reading it for a philosophy class I was in. And essentially one of Huxley's big points is that, that life apart from suffering is meaningless. And that, it's like the light bulb went off in my head. The Lord used this, this secular writer to draw me to this concept of suffering. And as I started to march out and understand how suffering works its way out through Scripture, the Lord, the Lord renewed my faith. And, and, and I've come, come to strongly believe that, that a lot of the reason that our Christian witness suffers today is that we have a poor theology of suffering. The world around us is suffering. 
it's broken. Death is at every door. Broken relationships are everywhere. And we lack a gospel redemptive narrative for how to handle that suffering. But the world around us needs it desperately. Um, so, so a lot of what I share with you this morning is coming from a place of personal passion. Uh, I, 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 I hold very closely to these tenets and are very thankful for these passages of Scripture and for, for the men who over the centuries have dedicated their lives to, to extolling these truths to us. So. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for your, your kindness, your goodness, your grace to us. Father, thank you that, that you saw fit to not leave us in our, our broken and sinful state, but that you sought to redeem us, to save us through the sending of, of your own Son. Father, as we look forward to Easter and back to the, the basic tenets of the gospel that we've learned over the last eight weeks, Father, I, I pray that you would encourage our spirits, that you would lift our souls, that you would cause us to adore you. Father, we, we're going to celebrate in the weeks to come the death, burial, and resurrection of your son. And God, I, I humbly ask that as we celebrate those things, that we keep in mind that the ultimate, ultimate end of those things is your glory and your good and our enjoyment of you. Father, we ask that as we open your word today, that as we dive into to passages uh, uh, across the council of Scripture, that your Holy Spirit work in our hearts, work in our minds, open our, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear truths that may be, may be difficult to swallow and difficult to reconcile at first. But Father, I pray through the work of your Holy Spirit that, that, that our, our minds and our hearts would come to value and to treasure these truths. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen. All right. So anytime I teach topically, uh, I always like to just come out at the front and say, here's where we're going. So today we've got one big idea, one, one sentence that we're going to seek to unpack throughout the Council of Scripture. Here's that idea. That God will relentlessly pursue our sanctification through suffering and trial, so that we may be free to find our ultimate enjoyment in Him and fulfill the purpose for which we were created. Let me read that one more time. God will relentlessly pursue our sanctification through suffering and trial, so that we may be free to find our ultimate enjoyment in Him and fulfill the purpose for which we were created. So let's break that down for a minute. Kind of the first idea here is that God's going to relentlessly pursue our sanctification. Uh, we'll look at different passages of Scripture that really draw this out. But at the end of the day, the, the, the big takeaway is God's not going to give up on our sanctification. He's not going to look at us and say, oh, Lee isn't handling this well, so I'm just going to stop. That's not how it's going to work. God, in his gracious love, will continue to pursue our sanctification. He's going to do that in part through suffering and trial. So as we look at particularly the life of Paul, um, but also some, some Old Testament characters as well, we'll see that, that suffering is guaranteed. We are going to suffer. We are going to endure trials. That, that is just the effect of sin on our world. 
The good news is, in that, we have a choice. Our suffering can either be used for sanctification and God's glory, or it can be wasted. And we're going to talk about how, how those things work themselves out in our lives. If we choose for our suffering to have meaning, it produces within us freedom. And that freedom is where we can find our ultimate enjoyment in God. And as we find our ultimate enjoyment in God, we glorify him and fulfill the purpose for which we were created. All right. So we're going to start in Psalm 16. And essentially, we're going to break down different components of that big idea. We'll look at where they're found in Scripture and explore them a little further from there. So, so the, the first is this, this kind of basic idea that, that sanctification, the process of us becoming more Christ-like, the, part, the process of us being purified and becoming more holy, is the means by which God intends for us to enjoy Him and thereby glorify Him. So there's two ideas there. One, sanctification leads to enjoyment of God, and two, enjoyment of God leads to glorification of God. One item of context this is all coming from a basic understanding that the, the chief end of man, to quote the Westminster Catechism, is to, is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. Um, rooted in 1 Corinthians 10, several other places throughout Scripture. But that's the basis of all of this. The, 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 our chief end as human beings is not for ourselves, it's not for our friends, it's not for our family. It is to glorify God by whatever means he sees necessary. Psalm 16, we're going to start in verse 5. Uh, psalm 16 is a Davidic psalm. Uh, it, it's used throughout, throughout church history to draw encouragement and joy. Starting in verse 5, David says this. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Then comes these these beautiful, beautiful words of this psalm. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So essentially what David is pointing us to is that that our call is not this this stoic, different, you know, distance from life where we say, ah, you know, there's nothing here for me. David's calling us to find massive pleasure and massive enjoyment in the person of God. So our call is not to be distant and, and, and cold. It is to enjoy and find our pleasure in the person of God. Now, that, that seems like a subtle difference, and I think on the, the surface we can all say, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But the way in which we live our lives and the way in which we conduct ourselves as churches and Christian communities seems to point to a different reality. We, we seem to preach a gospel of don't do's and don't find's and make sure you don't go here's, when really the truth is we should be pointing to finding massive joy, massive pleasure in the person of God. 
kind of second under, uh, undermining of this idea, we're going to go to Revelation 22. So th- this is literally the last chapter of the Bible. So David's pointing us to the fact that, that it is our duty and it is our call to find enjoyment and pleasure in God. We're going to go to Revelation 22, the end of redemptive history. Starting in verse 1, the passage says this. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And then it, the, the passage launches into this, this beautiful reality of, of us enjoying God and bringing glory to him. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So Psalm 16, David, Revelation 22, brings us to this reality that it's our call as believers to find massive enjoyment and pleasure in the person of Jesus Christ, in the triune God, and that will produce glorification of God, and in so doing, fulfill our, our purpose. So we're going to root all of our understanding of suffering, all of our pursuit of sanctification, all of God's work in sanctification in these two truths, that we are to enjoy God, and that in enjoying God, we glorify him forever. All right, second, second kind of component of our, our big idea is that this, this assertion that God is serious about our sanctification because he's serious about his glory. Um, if you'll flip in your Bibles to Exodus 34, we're going to catch up on the Mosaic Covenant while we're there. At a base, th- this is the idea that, that God, God will not relent in his pursuit of our sanctification because he, the design of creation, the, the arc of redemptive history is that we enjoy God so that we can bring glory to him. In Exodus 34, Moses has, has gone up on the mountain for the second time. Uh, he's, um, he, he's, be, he's before God. God is inscribing on the stones that Moses had taken up the mountain. Moses begs the Lord to, to essentially show his glory to the people because they are, they are difficult and they are stubborn. And so God, God gives to Moses the Mosaic Covenant and this, this passage here, Exodus 34, 11 through 16, is a part of that Mosaic Covenant. The passage starts with, with God making promises to, to Moses and to the nation of Israel about things he will do. He'll drive all of, of Israel's enemies out of the land. And then God says this. He says, Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down Asherim. So essentially what God's saying is, I'm going to give you all of this, but do not take their gods as your God at the end of the day. And then he says this, God says this, he says, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. 
This is not a. This is not just saying this is a characteristic of God. This is this is saying that God's name is jealous, meaning that there will be no other God on the throne of our hearts, other than the Triune God, the the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, and that God will not allow anything else to be on the throne of our hearts. So when we talk about the relentless pursuit of sanctification. This is what it's rooted in. The God that we serve will not allow us to sit and have other idols on the throne of our heart. He will use trial, he will use suffering to push those things out of our lives. And I think we can all attest that that is a painful process. And and it seems just as soon as one idol comes up and God pushes it out, that another one takes its place. So this is both, this is where the the glory of God and the justice of God and the holiness of God collides with the grace of God. Because our ultimate good is to enjoy God. That's clear throughout all of Scripture. The means by which God brings that to pass are the hard things of this life, are the sicknesses, are the, the situational difficulties are the things that make us uncomfortable, or is the pain that we feel. And God will continue to allow those things into our lives, and will continue to bring them into our lives until we are left with nothing else but to enjoy Him. And so I, I, for me, it's been helpful as, I, as I've thought through these truths over the last decade to just set a flag in my mind that, that, when, that when affection bubbles up, Whatever it is. I mean, it, it could literally be anything. It could be a job. It could be a relationship. It could be a thing. It could be any number of, of things that make me feel good, that bring me comfort, that bring me joy, that bring me happiness. I've made myself a mental note to remember this, that we serve the God whose name is Jealous, and that whatever that is will not stand and will not last, and that God and his relentless love of me and of us will use suffering and trial to root out whatever that is. Next, next part of our, our, our big idea is this idea that the work of sanctification is done at least in part through suffering and trials. If you'll turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 12, we're gonna we're gonna visit Paul for a second. Um, you know, a lot of us know the kind of arc and pattern of Paul's life. He he was an itinerant missionary, um, wrote a large portion of the New Testament, and we come to Second Corinthians twelve, and and we we find Paul in this this very vulnerable moment. So we, we see Paul extolling churches through his epistles all throughout the New Testament, correcting errant teaching, correcting falsehoods, correcting poor behavior. Paul is doing all of those things. But in 2 Corinthians 12, actually starting in chapter 11, Paul starts this conversation about essentially individuals in the church that have seen different portions of the glory of God. And he starts this conversation about how he's not going to mention those things in this letter because he doesn't want to become proud and conceited. 
And in verse 7, he says this. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, revelations being all of these glimpses of the glory of God that he and others have seen, a thorn was given me in the flesh. That thorn was a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I, Paul, will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So you have this vivid picture of of that same process we were just talking about. Paul, Paul has seen and has, has talked to others who have seen these glorious glimpses of the wonders of God. And within his heart starts to well up pride. Starts to well up this, look what I have experienced that you have not. And, and the Lord does not allow him to rest in that fact. The, 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 Lord, the Lord allows this thorn, this messenger of Satan... To, to, to dwell in Paul's life, seemingly to the end of his days. E- even as Paul pleads with the Lord and says, Lord, please, please take this from me. The Lord's message is not, Paul, I hear your discomfort. I'm coming to save you. The Lord's message is, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. This is for your good, despite how uncomfortable and how painful it may be. You will endure this for the rest of your days as a reminder to not become prideful. Paul ends ends those verses with the words, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Those are very seemingly basic words. But my, are they hard to implement in our lives. How, how difficult is it to, to have the pain, to have the suffering, to have the brokenness, but yet have the contentment just to rest in it, realizing that the Lord is doing his good work in us. I, my first, when I, when I see pain, when I see discomfort, when I see hardship, when I see calamity, my first inclination is to run away, to find another way, find another path. But it may very well be that the Lord is asking us to sit in that pain, to sit in that calamity, to sit in that suffering, to sit in that hardship, and to be content in it. And that, that, that is no easy call. Which then begs the question of, well, why in the world would we do that? Why would we fight to be content in suffering? Seems to make no sense. At a practical, pragmatic level, no one does this, right? It, it, is, a, it is a built-in human response when we, when we come to suffering, hardship, to find another way, 
It may be by running through it, hoping we get to the other side. It may be running away from it. It may be freezing in place. But our, our response, our natural response is to, to not be content in suffering. So why would we do that? If you flip over to James chapter 1, just wanted to give you a fair and balanced perspective. We got Paul and we got James, so we got the full counsel of Scripture here. Um, James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. James says this, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without, appro- without reproach, and it will be given to him. So what James is telling us is that our suffering does not have to be purposeless. It can be purposeful. It can produce within us spiritual good. Ultimately, that spiritual good, that spiritual maturity, that spiritual development will produce within us joy, will produce within us the enjoyment of God, thereby fulfilling our created purpose. There, there are many, many, many spiritual fruits that can come from suffering. But I want to talk about five this morning. And I want to give you these as practical examples so that when in your life you encounter suffering and trial and calamity and all of those things, you at least have somewhere, somewhere to turn and somewhere to start. To say, okay, I, I have this thing in my life that is hard. I, I've, I've gone to the Lord in prayer, asked him to remove it, and he has not. So now I must seek contentment. I must seek contentment in it. And to seek that contentment, look for these five things. First, we just read it with Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Suffering produces the spiritual fruit of humility. Paul, Paul of all people, could boast of all things. And you, you read the writings of Paul, and he had everything going for him. He had the, the pedigree. He had the citizenship. He had the exposure. I mean, the Lord met him on the road to Damascus and intervened in a very personal way in his life. I mean, Paul had everything going for him. But the Lord realized that for Paul's good and for the ultimate sake of the effectiveness of the gospel, that Paul could not become prideful in those things. So God intentionally used suffering to bring humility into Paul's life. I think we, in a lot of ways, as 21st century Christians living in America, this, this is probably one of the things we need the most. It's very easy to fall into pride when, when our lives are largely surrounded by comfort and ease and enjoyment. It's very easy for the, the idol to come in and to set up on the throne of our hearts to say, Seeking that is the ultimate thing. At all costs, protect that thing. And so instead of being vulnerable, instead of, uh, of letting the, the, the work of the Lord do its work in us, we, we put up walls. We say, no, 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 no. I'm too good to talk about this thing that I'm struggling with. Or no, 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 no. I, I have, have too, many, too, many, too much to lose to be 
open and vulnerable and to confess to my brothers and sisters? Or why do I need God at all? I got to I got to I got to I got to work. I get a paycheck. I give my 10%. Done. Why do I need God at all? So when you encounter suffering, remember the example of Paul. God may be bringing this calamity, this hardship into your life for the very purpose of learning humility. Second spiritual fruit that can come from suffering is dependence on the triune God. Um, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians again, first chapter. This is Paul. He says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Yet again, Paul finds himself in a situation where he has been afflicted um, with, with a trial. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So I, we, Paul doesn't give us the exact particulars here of what Paul's suffering was, what his trial was, what his affliction was, but it was desperate. I mean, Paul's exact words are that we despaired of life itself. So Paul was in this place where he was almost wishing that he was just gone. So the Lord takes him up, life goes on, and he's despairing of life itself. But Paul then says this. He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us once more. So Paul, yet again, finds himself in desperate straits to the point of not knowing will he survive. And he says, in his own words, he said, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. So, so in our lives... It's very, 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 very easy in the world in which we live where we have safety nets at every corner. We've got our job, we've got our relationships, we've got our savings, we've got whatever it is that we're placing our hope in. It's very easy to depend upon, depend upon ourselves and not upon God. But remember, God is a jealous God. His name is jealous. He doesn't want us to depend upon ourselves or our bank account, or our abilities, or our relationships, or the safety nets we put around us. He wants our dependence to be on Him. So if we find ourselves in a situation where we feel that we can no longer depend on those things, the bank account is shrinking, the friends are leaving, the health is gone, it may very well be that the Lord wants us to depend on Him. He's using that to root that idol out of our self-sufficiency and our pride. Third spiritual fruit that comes from suffering will be in Hebrews 12, verses 6 through 17. I'm calling this the white-hot fire of our solitude. Essentially, this idea that, that, that suffering and trial produces in us struggle. And when we sit in our in ourselves and in our silence and our solitude, there's a strain. There's a there's this we almost can't breathe feeling. And in that, 
the Lord's working. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 6, says this. He says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Moving further down in the passage. For in the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So there's this process being described in Hebrews 12 where, where the Lord is using pain and suffering and trial to chastise us to, to the place where our hands are shaking and our knees are weak and we just feel like we can't go any further. And in that solitude and in that, that burning and in that struggle, God is doing the work of sanctification. So don't, don't run away from that pain and solitude. Take it to the Father. Run to the Father with it so that he may show us his grace and his kindness and that he may remove from our hearts the idols that we have set up of worship. Fourth spiritual fruit of, from suffering is, is prayer. This, this seems somewhat obvious. Uh, I, I think many of us, when we're in seasons of trial and, and desperation, turn to the Lord in prayer. And that is good, that is healthy, that is right, that is, that is where we should be. We, we should find ourselves in, in the quiet before the Lord, lifting our, our cares and our souls before Him. So I want to I encourage us in that prayer. I, I think it, it's far too often that we feel that our prayers are useless, that we feel that they are ineffective that they are pointless, that it's just a rote exercise. I want to encourage you with, with two things in that prayer. First, um, Richard Foster is, uh, is a theologian and a pastor. Um, he's wrote a book called The Celebration of Discipline, uh, where he walks through spiritual disciplines and, and how they, they are a, an instrumental part of the Christian life, not just as a list of things to do, but a, as a way of communing with God. He, he's, he's an expert in many ways on, on the practice of spiritual disciplines throughout church history. Um, he says this about the prayer of suffering. He says, if in all the pantheon of prayer, there's one form that is totally other-centered, we have now come to it. In the prayer of suffering, we leave far behind our needs and our wants, and even our transformation and union with God. And here we give to God the various difficulties and trials that we face, asking him to use them redemptively. We also voluntarily take into ourselves the griefs and sorrows of others in order to set them free. And our sufferings, those who suffer, come to see the face of the suffering God. So essentially Richard Foster is saying, uh, of all the types of prayer, this prayer of suffering, this prayer in desperation, it is the prayer that is totally others-focused. Others Even though we may be feeling pain and struggle, 
God intends to use that for, his, for our good and his, his glory. He goes on to tell this story. Um, he, he had been called by uh, a sister in Christ to, to come pray with her. He was a member in his church. Um, this, this lady had grown up as, as a pastor's child um, and, and you know, had, had remained in the church, but had a lot of, a lot of hurt um, just from the, the, the pain of, of growing up as a, as a child with a, a father who a lot of times wasn't home because he was caring for the needs of his church, whose, whose family's budget was very tight, and who quite frankly dealt with all of the complaints that you and I come up with. Um, and so he, he went to pray for this dear sister, and as, as, as he put his hands on her and started to pray, the Lord brought back to his mind all of the suffering that he had been through in those very same circumstances, the, 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 the complaints, the time away from his family, the tight budgets, and, and you know, he, sa- he said he just had to stop, like he could not pray anymore, and he said the tears just, just flowed down his face. And so he finished up his time, and um, he was leaving that sister, and, and she looked at him and essentially said, she was like, Pastor, you couldn't have said anything more than what those tears meant. And that's, that's the prayer of suffering. When we, we empathize and we have compassion, because we know who we're praying for, and we know what it feels like. And there's no other way that we get that other than suffering. So when you suffer, when we suffer, when we go through hardship, remember what it feels like because there's going to be somebody else who's going through the same thing. And there will be no words. There will be nothing you can say to that person that brings more healing and more comfort and more hope than to sit with them in empathy and compassion and point them to the God who intends all of that for good. One last encouragement for us in in prayer. Back in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, this is is the the picture of the the throne room. Seeking to open, open the scroll, looking for one who is worthy. Revelation 5 says this, the vision of John. It says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I, being John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So we're in the the throne room looking for someone to open the scroll. No one is found. John starts to weep. The elder says, weep no more. One has been found to open the scroll. And then at the end of verse 8, says this. He says, And when he, the lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So these prayers that we offer up are not ineffective. 
there, there's a sweet smell of the aroma of the throne room of God. They may feel ineffective. They may feel powerless. They may feel pointless. But it's the sweet aroma of the throne of God. So your prayers matter. Your prayers matter immensely. Last spiritual fruit that comes from suffering, also from the life of Paul, is in Philippians 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, so Paul is extolling us to this very intentional redirecting of our minds away from worry to the person of God so that we may receive peace. So in our suffering, in our trial, in our hardship, when things are uncertain, when we don't know what the outcome is going to be, Paul exhorts us to discipline our minds, to redirect it to the hope found in Christ. At the end of that chapter, Paul goes on to say this. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ. He strengthens me. So, so as, as, as the work of sanctification, as the pressure of trial works itself out in Paul's life, he's, he's found this, this secret to disciplining his mind and re, redirecting it from worry and anxiety to hope. And in so doing, he finds contentment. So the last spiritual fruit of trial and of suffering that I want us to see today is contentment. If we struggle to be content, it is likely because we are trying to put something on the throne of our lives, at the center of our lives, other than the person of God. And as we have seen throughout Scripture, God is a jealous God, and He will not allow that to stand. So I I encourage us as brothers and as sisters, we all feel discontentment. That, That is a feeling that we all feel in various points of our lives. It could be our family. It could be our work. It could be our church. It could be any number of situations. But when we feel that discontentment welling up, just remember that if we allow that discontentment to become the controlling affection of our life, that God will root it out. And when God does root it out, through suffering and trial and uncertainty, we must remember that we divert, we divert our minds, that we divert our eyes from that which is controlling, from that which is worrisome, from that which is producing fear to the one who has hope and who has healing. And in so doing, we find that contentment that we so long for. So that, those are five spiritual fruits that suffering and trial can produce in our lives. But the question still kind of hangs over us. Are those spiritual fruits enough? Is that really what we're after? Is it, are we really after 
contentment and suffering and joy for the sake of spiritual fruit. And as easy as it is to say yes to that sentence, I'm going to tell you the answer is no, it's not. Because spiritual fruit is not an end. Spiritual fruit is a means to an end. Spiritual fruit points us to enjoyment of God. And if we just stop at the spiritual fruit, we put an idol on the throne of our hearts. Because it's too easy for us to find ourselves in the position Paul was in. Look at all of these things that the Lord has done in my life. Look at how great and how, and how faithful he's been, which is great. That is great news. But in comes pride. And we serve the God whose name is Jealous. And that pride will not last. So the, the ultimate end of our, our spiritual suffering is not pride. It's not being able to say, I have suffered, and look at all of this fruit that it's produced. I had the, the pleasure of, of working with a number of missionaries who were on the field. And this is the temptation that is common to all of them. They have endured trial. They have endured difficulty. But man, that pride is strong. They love to tell the story, and rightfully so, uh, of how the Lord has been faithful. But too quickly, that becomes about them. Look at what I've done. Look at how effective my ministry has been. Look at all these people that I've reached. You know what they become? Bitter. They become bitter. It's no different for us. This church could be wildly successful. We could push through all the difficulties, all of the, the things against us. But if we get to the end and all we say is, look at what we've done, we'll be nothing more than bitter. So church, I encourage us. Let the suffering, let the trial produce spiritual fruit and let that spiritual fruit free you to enjoy God. So how this works, how this works practically, it's all in our minds, right? It's all in our minds and in our hearts. We endure, we, we encounter whatever suffering trial that comes our way. We persevere through it. We allow it to produce spiritual fruit in our lives. We, 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 we reach this point of freedom where there's no more worry, there's no more fear. We're, we're free to enjoy God. But we have to be content in that. We have to guard our hearts. We have to renew our minds so that we can rest in the enjoyment of God. And in that place and in those moments, that's where we're bringing glory to God. That's where we are fulfilling our end as human beings. We're fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. Now, the difficulty about that is it's not going to feel like we're doing a whole lot. But that's the point. We, we persevere, we push through the trial, we push through the suffering so that we may get to a place where we enjoy the communion of God, where we can, we, can, we can echo David in Psalm 16. We can say that you have made known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the end. That's the goal. 
finish, finish with, a, with a quote that I, I, I believe summarizes all of this very, very well. Um, if, I, I will extol this to you. If, if you want to learn more about this, we can talk. Um, I, I have barely scratched the surface of everything that's here. Um, I, I will commend to you that, that, that John Piper has dedicated his life to this topic. R- read his books, read his writings. They're full of scripture. Piper, Piper's at the end of his ministry. He's retired as, as a teaching pastor, and he's, he's essentially writing um, writing at this point. But, but he said this. He says, God is not worshipped where he is not treasured and enjoyed. Praise is not an alternative to joy, but the expression of joy. Not to enjoy God is to dishonor him. To say to him that something else satisfies you more is the opposite of worship. It is sacrilege. My, my prayer for me and for us that I find my enjoyment in God. That is the end. That is the purpose for which I was created. And if I'm finding myself enjoying anything else, it's an idol. And God will root that idol out. Relentlessly, he will root it out because he is a jealous God. He knows that we were created to enjoy him and to glorify him. A couple of questions for us before we, we close with the hymn this morning. As we, as we walk away this morning, I want us to remember first that suffering is expected and that we should joylessly, joyfully anticipate it. It's coming. If you're not in it right now, just wait. It's going to be there. You know how I know it's going to be there? A, we live in a sinful world, and B, every single one of us is sinful. And God's going to relentlessly pursue that suffering. Secondly, are, are we prepared to not waste that suffering? We have a choice. We truly do. God, God is working for our sanctification. But, but we still have to, to make the choice to either sit in it and walk through it and learn the spiritual good and see the spiritual fruit or to run away from it. Run away from it into despair and into fear and into anxiety. So are we prepared to not waste our suffering, but to allow it to do what's good work in us? And lastly, what do we commend to our neighbor about this gospel? When we're in a conversation and, and a, a coworker, a neighbor, s- discloses to you some suffering that they have, some affliction, I, I will tell you, at least the conversations that I have, people love to tell you what they're struggling with. Um, why that is, I don't know. But people love to tell you what they're struggling with. And we now have a narrative, we have a framework to give purpose to that. To give purpose to that suffering, to give purpose to that affliction. So I ask us, what gospel are we giving our neighbors and our coworkers and the people we come to come into contact with on, on a day-to-day basis? Do, do, have, we, have we sat in suffering long enough to see the spiritual fruit so that we can put our hand on our neighbor 
and our friend say, listen, I, I know, I know it's tough and it hurts and it's painful. But God intends this for good. Or do we just say, man, brother, that really stinks. Good luck with that. <laughs> it's an option. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to, to have life-giving conversations with our friends and with our neighbors about the purpose of their suffering and their affliction. I'll end with this. As, as I was preparing this week, um, an old Isaac Watts hymn kept coming to mind. The, the hymn is at the cross. It's a, a, a monumental hymn in, in, in the history of, of hymnology. This, um, this hymn it played, it played a large role in, in Fanny Crosby's coming to faith, who went on to, to write many other hymns. Hymn says this, says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? The chorus says, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith that I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon that tree, amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith that I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. While might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in, when Christ the mighty maker died, for man the creature's sin. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith that I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Pray with me. Father, I'm continue to be uh, overwhelmed by the ways in which you intend to use our suffering. That, that through the course of redemptive history, that, that even from the fall of man and the sin of, of Adam, that you intended all of that for our good and your glory, that is, that is Satan contrives attacks against us and as we feel the pain of those attacks and as we feel the effect of sin in our lives that it is not purposeless that it is purposeful God I pray that you strengthen me that you strengthen us that in suffering and in trial that we persevere to see spiritual fruit that we allow the suffering and the trial to produce within us humility and contentment. That, that we sit in that, that white hot fire of solitude where we can hardly breathe, where our hands are shaking and our knees are weak. Father, I pray that it produces within us this sweet, sweet prayer of suffering. That we come before you broken, 
weak, feeble, and depend on you. Depend on you for deliverance. Depend on you for all spiritual good. Father, we pray that we would be receptive to the sufferings of others around us, that, that, that we, would, we would let the, the pain and the struggle of the suffering set in so that when we encounter our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and the person on the street who is also suffering, that we can sit with them in that and point them to the only hope that they have, and that hope is you. Father, we, we pray that in this process, that we, that we do not do it out of some misplaced stoicism or some misplaced desire to suffer for pride's sake, but that we do it to find enjoyment and satisfaction in you. Father, we thank you that you are a jealous God, that you are a God that will allow us to worship none other, that you discipline us as your sons and your daughters. Father, we, we pray that we be faithful to these things as a church and that we see that fruit in our lives. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen.